Amen. And if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12 tonight, verses 18. We'll be reading through verse 29. We're in the midst of a study in Hebrews. I think we'll take us till uh, just past Christmas with a little break at that time. Our passage both this week and next week is about worship. We're going to walk through this passage twice, the front end mostly this evening. You'll hear the language explicitly of worship at verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. That's the application he's driving towards. We'll focus on the first few verses. And this subject of worship is timely for a couple of reasons as we turn there. Uh, One reason is shameless reminder alert. This is our last Sunday evening worship at 4.30 next week. We'll be here, Lord willing, at 10.30 for public corporate worship. The second reason this is timely is that next week is what many call Reformation Sunday, celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the reforms brought to the church by those who understood and applied God's holy word to the doctrine and practice of the medieval church, seeking to bring about a more faithful expression. In particular, the Reformation was about the Reformation of the worship of the living God. The Reformation restored the central role of Jesus Christ in the life of the church, the central place of his once and for all perfect sacrifice for the pardon of sinners. His central place in the obedience he offered unto God being the righteousness by which our unrighteousness is covered and his central place as the sole mediator between God and man. Not Mary, not dead saints, not relics or idols or human priests even, but Jesus, the one in whom God and man meet. So we're thinking about worship. What is worship? Worship is a corporate Christ-provided encounter with the living God. He meets with us and we meet with him. The psalmist says we, uh, we are to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And in worship, not only do we bless him, but he blesses us as we meet together. Now in verses 18 through 24, then the writer here is motivating us to that end by what we have in Jesus. And then he calls us to worship this Jesus. And so let me invite you to consider God's word from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. This is the word of God. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, 
I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father and our God, uh, who is worthy uh, to handle these things, we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that your voice would speak, that your spirit would enlighten the eyes of our mind and the knowledge of Jesus, and that you would bring joy to the heart and make wise the simple and give life where there is sickness and death. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. The passage I read beginning at verse 18 starts with the word for. It's always helpful to ask what what is a word like for there for. And obviously it's a connection to what he's just said. It connects our passage to a warning we heard about last week. You'll find it in verses 16 and 17. A warning that we shouldn't be like Esau, who we saw was an idolater. In, In 1986... A uh, Texas gem dealer named Roy Wettstein was pawing through a Tupperware bowl of cheaply priced rocks at a mineral show in Arizona when he came across a lavender gray potato-sized stone that looked a bit special. You want $15 for this? Wettstein asked the amateur collector. Tell you what, replied the collector, I'll... I'll let you have it for $10. It's not as pretty as the others. Westine walked away with the world's largest star sapphire, later valued as high as $2.28 million. He planned to sell his 1,905 carat bargain in its uncut form for $1.5 million, and then to put the profits in a trust for his two sons who each gave him five bucks to go to the show and bring back a little something for them. <laughs> if you don't 
know what you possess. You may disregard it or let it go for something worth far less. Esau did that. He was an unholy and profane man who valued God and his gifts so cheaply that he abandoned the worship and service of the true and living God for the sake of satisfying his own belly for a meal. He sold away his inheritance in the promises of God to his brother for a bowl of stew. And the writer knows that his hearers, these Hebrew Christians, under pressure from friends and family, under persecution perhaps by Christ-haters and places of authority, are tempted to turn away from Jesus and to return to the Judaism of their past. And to turn away from Jesus would make them like Esau, trading in this way, trading what is true and eternal and everlasting for what has now to them become worthless. Trading New Testament realities to go back to Old Testament pictures and promises of the reality, but that aren't the reality at all themselves. Now, perhaps you and I are tempted to leave Jesus for Judaism. Maybe just a few of us might be. But to abandon Jesus for anything else would have the same disastrous effect. We are all pressured and tempted to do that in various ways, though. One of the terrible evils being exposed in Hollywood of late, for those who pay attention to social media and entertainment media, maybe you've seen in recent days uh, these uh, actors and actresses who have been uh, horribly abused by the powerful and influential and wealthy either agents or directors or producers. The violence and intimidation in it have been uh, horrific, according to the stories. For some, not all, for some, an evil trade was offered and that evil trade was accepted. Take this abuse, we won't call it that, in exchange for prosperity or popularity, Keep silent about this abuse, and you may win an Academy Award for your work. Make trouble, and you may never work in this town again. It was an ugly, ugly trade, but the kind that happens in many places and relationships, not just in Hollywood. The readers of C.S. Lewis may know his outstanding essay entitled, the inner ring. You'll find it collected in the weight of glory. Uh, and the warning in it he gives is this, and you know, in every setting, and whether it's school or it's business, a company, society, there's an official hierarchy of some kind, and sometimes there's a separate kind of prestige hierarchy too, where the cool kids are. And uh, they are, quote, the inner ring. And there are always going to people, be people who desperately want to get into the inner ring and will cut all sorts of corners to be accepted. As Lewis put it, quote, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet very bad do very bad things. 
How do you say no to temptation to trade your principles for a place in the inner ring? How do you not buckle under pressure or compromise your most treasured beliefs? How do you remain faithful to Jesus when an employer or a suitor offers you earthly gain or prosperity or success or popularity if you just abandon your heavenly principles? How do you do that? You've got to be clear-eyed about what you have in Jesus. And you've got to be convinced holding on to him is worth it. What do we have in Jesus, the writer puts before us? And he does it by means of two, con- or two uh, contrast of two mountains. Two mountains. Mount Sinai, verses 18 through 21, though he doesn't name it, he certainly describes it. And then at verse 22 to 24, Mount Zion. One is a mountain of fear, a mountain of judgment, a mountain of death. And the other is a mountain of joy and salvation and life. Three questions then as we get at and pick at this passage. Three questions. In trusting in Jesus, what about Mount Sinai have you escaped? And second, in coming to Mount Zion, what do you now have? And how should that change you? Three questions. The first, verses 18 to 21. First, notice what we've been rescued from in in terms of Mount Sinai. Notice where he begins, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. The mountain is not named, as I said, but all the descriptions are identical to the story in Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 4. God, you may remember, had led his people out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness. And here he's brought them to his mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive his law, to be constituted as his people under his kingship, redeemed from Egypt to Mount Sinai, in need of redemption here from the law given at Mount Sinai. And they need that redemption by the God of Mount Sinai. If you go back to the story in Exodus chapter 19, beginning at verse 11, you read that the Lord came down on the mountain in the sight of all the people. And at verse 12 it says, uh, God said through Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, quote, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So they were to stand back from the God who is perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness, the God who was manifesting his presence. And if they dare to approach, they shall be killed. That was the command. And then there are Hebrews describes these fearful elements of nature that accompanied it and put dread in their hearts. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. These were a kind of barrier to the people. In them, the Lord both puts on display his glory and his power, but he also obscures himself. He shows that he is accessible and inaccessible. I'm here... But don't come too near. And more than that, in verse 19, 
The sound of a trumpet was there, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they couldn't, couldn't endure the order that was given, that even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. So what you've got is God in the unmitigated glory of his majesty and holiness saying there shall be instant judgment in my presence if you transgress my law. I am not to be trifled with. If you read over at Exodus chapter 19 and verse 18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder the trumpet sounded the people trembled the trumpet got louder and louder you can imagine people began to cover their ears people were looking for places to hide the god of heaven was appearing he was summoning his people to appear before him and what does he say to them what's the message it's the ten commandments it's the moral law and that law does what it exposes them in their heart of hearts Each one hears the moral law and says, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And what do their mouths do? Their mouths shut. Ours too. The Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, in reflecting on this in verse 19, says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God that you appear in the courtroom of God before the bar of his justice you hear the law and you don't even open your own mouth in your own defense you just keep it zipped because you have no defense Paul goes on in Romans 3 verse 24 by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin So Mount Sinai is the supreme revelation of the glory and the majesty and the holiness and justice of God. And his law commands them. And it commands what is good. There's nothing wrong with his law. It commands us to love. To love God and love each other. It commands. But it condemns. And the law itself cannot pardon. So the people are afraid. The people tremble, they stand far off, they beg that no further words should be spoken to them, and they say to Moses, Moses, you go on up and talk to God. Don't let God talk to us. Let God talk to you, and you tell us what he says. And Moses uh, acts as their mediator, the go-between between God and man. And how did Moses take the sight and sound of God? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 21. It was so terrifying. Moses said, I tremble with fear. When the mediator, the man of God, whom God appointed as the go-between for himself and his people, when this mediator sees and trembles and is afraid, you know you have a problem. And they had a massive problem. And the New Testament says we have a better mediator who is the mediator of a better covenant built on better 
promises. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not picking on, and the Bible isn't picking on Moses. We've already seen Moses served his purpose in his generation by God's appointment, God's choosing. Hebrews chapter 3 told us that Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. But by contrast, the greater glory of Jesus, Jesus was faithful as a son over God's house. Moses is but the servant in the house that Jesus himself is building. And what they needed, God went on eventually to promise them. that Though the law condemns them, there is a place of atonement. There is a way of atonement. They need pardon. They need a Savior. And God will supply. And so Moses and Aaron and the tabernacle and the tabernacle sacrifices, they all become in their own way, not the Savior, but they stand in for the Savior as pictures and promises of Jesus. And now that Jesus has come, the writer of Hebrews is saying, fulfillment has come. And so to go back, so to go back, is to reject the fulfillment. But to reject the fulfillment is to reject the promises. Because if you reject the gift that is promised, what you're really saying is, I also reject the promise of the gift. And as Hebrews has said before, now that the reality has come, those old ways don't serve you well. They don't do what they used to do. They're worthless now. And so the right is saying, but praise the Lord, a better mediator has come. And in Jesus, we can come boldly with confidence, with assurance before the throne of grace. We are not invited to stay back, but to draw near to the throne of grace, not to shrink back. And so here he's saying, look, don't shrink back from Jesus to Moses. Don't idolize the servant in the house when the son over that house has come. And I might say to us, there is no one and nothing better than Jesus. You've got to be convinced of that if you're ever going to begin to fight idolatry and worship the worthy one. Now, he contrasts the mountains and he comes to Mount Zion and he says, you have come to Mount Zion, verses 22 through 24. And what do you have in Mount Zion? Notice he says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And then he says, and this is what you have. And this is what you have. And this, and this, and this. Seven things all connected by Anne. Just one list after another. So let's walk through those seven things in the first place. You have come to the heavenly city. All who trust in this Savior have come to the heavenly city. The city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the destination God's people have always wanted. This is what Abraham himself longed for, not the earthly, but the heavenly Jerusalem. We saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, Abraham, Sarah, all these Old Testament saints, they were looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 16, as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one, and God is not ashamed be called their God. He has prepared for them that city. Abraham has received that city. That is what he longed for. That is what is yours, he says. It belongs to you. You belong to it. Yes, I know. We're waiting to see it with our own physical eyes. And we're waiting to walk its streets. But we are its citizens. And convinced of that. 
You can walk as a pilgrim here, living as an alien and as a stranger in a foreign land. And no one can trade you the kingdoms of this world on the condition that you just give up serving Jesus. You know that's a bad trade. You can say no to idolatry. What does it profit a man after all? If he gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul, asked Jesus. No, no, no. You have come to the heavenly city. And you have come to the angelic celebration. End of verse 22. You have come, he says, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Festal gathering is festive, rejoicing. Jesus said there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a party in heaven, we might say. A celebration. On Mount Sinai, however... The angels were servants of God's judgment, ready to strike. Like in the Garden of Eden, when that angel barred the way to the gate, to the entrance, to paradise itself. But remember Hebrews chapter 1? In the gospel, the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. They are servants at the party. And this is a party you don't want to miss. And that means you can miss every other party in this world. If you are in the one where the angels are celebrating. And thirdly, he says, you have come to a secure church, verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What's that talking about? The assembly means church. It's the Lord's church. It's called the firstborn. Why? Because Jesus is himself the firstborn of God. The firstborn from the dead. And we are in union with him. What is his is ours. We share his status. We are in union with Jesus. Co-heirs. With Jesus of all things. And you know the firstborn was the inheritor. And it says our names are enrolled in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How secure then is the church? Every firstborn inherits. Our names are already in the book. And that means in this world no private club rejection. No nation-state border wall, no family disinheritance can threaten your status as a secure citizen of heaven in the family of God. Are you tempted to value the world's stamp of approval over your heavenly passport? Fourth. You have come to a divine court. Middle of verse 23. You have come, he says, and to God, the judge of all. We've come to God. You haven't missed him. And he is what he has always been. He's the same God as the God of Mount Sinai. He's the judge of all. Nothing has changed about him. He isn't any different from old to new. 
But the reason that this is a comfort here and expressed as a word of encouragement here is because we who have trusted in Jesus stand vindicated before the bar of God's justice in his court through the righteousness of Jesus clothing us before the bar of his justice. He has already declared about us there's no condemnation for you who are in my son. For you are in Christ Jesus. And so you can see what an encouragement to these early believers who are being persecuted by even kings in authority. No king or judge can indict you. No neighbor can convict you of worse than your God in heaven knows. And he's already acquitted you. And if they wrongly condemn you, you have this encouragement too. That he is their judge as well. You don't need to buy yourself into their favor when you already have God's. And you have come, fifthly, to spirits completed, uh, or to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 23, they have received what they longed for. They have begun to enjoy their heavenly reward. What God the judge declared about them on the earth, he has now made certain of in their experience. They are those who have been declared righteous with God, and now they are in themselves righteous. They grieved and mourned their continuing evil on this earth. They grieved and mourned their continuing struggle to do what God says to do, to love as God says to love, to love what is good and to hate what is evil. And they grieved that, but God has comforted those who grieve and he has freed them from the evil in them that they grieved. These are the ones that we'll sing of in the close of the service when we sing for all the saints. We'll sing this line, Oh, blessed communion. Fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So you don't need to sell your soul for the promise of human perfection you can't attain on earth. When what you hunger and thirst for is guaranteed to be fully satisfied by Jesus and in heaven. Don't let the moralists, don't let the legalists, don't let the cult religionists sell you a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow of hard work that only a leprechaun could perform. Jesus guarantees you the perfection you seek by his work received as a gift you have come he says to spirits completed and you've come to the mediator of a new covenant Sinai cried out for perfect obedience and he has fulfilled everything Sinai required he makes purification for sins he puts sin away by the sacrifice of himself and in a moment we're going to sing let us love and sing and wonder let us praise the savior's name he has hushed the law's loud thunder he has quenched mount sinai's flame he has washed 
us with his blood. He presents our souls to God. And seventh, you have come to the blood of the cross. Verse 24, end of it. And you have come not only to Jesus, but you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a better word. What does the blood of Abel speak? The story is told in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was born first. Abel, his brother, was born second. Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel brought the firstborn of his flock in their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Hebrews 11 has already told us, Abel offered his sacrifice by faith, and it was a blood offering for atonement from the flock. Apparently, Cain didn't think he needed atonement, and he didn't come in faith. And so Abel was graciously received, not that he merited anything, but Cain was justly rejected, and God warned him about sin and his hard-heartedness. But it fell on deaf ears, and he was consumed with what? Envy and anger and hatred. And so Genesis goes on at verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Not because the Lord didn't know, but to rattle Cain, to invite repentance. And Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Do you hear that hard heart? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. And you do know where he is. And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. What does Abel's blood say? It cries out for justice. It cries for vengeance. It cries for cursing on the one who committed murder. But the blood of Abel demanded justice. And God judged Cain and cursed him and drove him out from his presence. But what does the blood of Jesus say? The writer says it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What word? What word does the blood of Jesus cry out? What, does the, what word does the firstborn son of God cry out against his brothers in Israel who killed him? His blood says mercy. His blood says pardon. His blood says bless and do not curse. Abel's blood cried for justice. Jesus' blood satisfied justice. Abel cried for cursing. Jesus was cursed. Let us wonder then. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. And when through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. You see what the writer is saying? You've come home. You've come to the heavenly city. 
You've come to the angelic celebration, to a secure, a secure church, to a divine court, to spirits completed, to the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of the cross. What's the application then? Three things. One, acceptance. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't turn a hard heart and a deaf ear against one whose blood cries mercy. Two, but be grateful. Verse 28, therefore let us be grateful. And so, verse 28, worship. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us praise the one who valued us above the cost of his own son to give us all in him. Let us value then him above all else. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't spare Jesus, but that in him all who come may have everything. Grant that that would be us. By your mighty grace and work, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Let us love and sing in wonder.